All right, this is the hour. We'll take your phone calls with Ralph Ellis as we talk about ancient megaliths and, of course, ice ages and the works when we come back on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with Ralph Ellis. Ralph, you're familiar with the late American prophet, the sleeping prophet, Edgar Cayce? Yes, I am. Uh, I've not read his books, but yes, quite familiar. When he was alive, he thought of uh, the Hall of Records, and he said they were in three places near the Bimali Islands and uh, one in Central America and one at the base of the Sphinx. They have found a cavern at the base of the Sphinx. I don't know if they've gone in there or not. My suggestion, my guess is that maybe the Egyptians have where the Hall of Records might be. What do you think of that? Yeah, I'm not sure what to make of the Hall of Records idea. I do talk about this in one of my books, Soth Architect of the Universe and K2 Quest of the Gods, um, because with my megaliths, I end up with maps. So all of the megaliths are sort of maps of the world. But what do you do with the map of the world? I mean, are, are you just saying, hey, I know what the world looks like? Well, possibly, but the other thing you can do with a map is mark something on it, i.e. you could mark the location yeah. of something like the Hall of Records. Um, the, the the thing is that my marks on this map end up in rather different places to uh, what Casey was uh, talking about. I end up with one in the tropics in the middle of the Atlantic um, on an island, uh, and I end up with one high up in the Himalaya. Now, in some senses, that would make more sense, because if you were leaving something, you know, like 2001, A Space Odyssey, with the megaliths, um, the obelisk that they put on Earth, if you were leaving something, then you would really want it somewhere remote. You wouldn't want it where it could easily be found, you know, digging the drains for a a latrine or something. Uh, You would want it remote, so you would have to go and discover it. And, of course, my locations that I come out with when looking at the Giza pyramids, when looking at Avebury and Stonehenge, uh, are very remote, very remote indeed. You would have to go looking for them. So you'd only ever find those locations if you could understand the maps uh, that these megaliths draw. So that's interesting. What would you say, Ralph, is the most fascinating megalith that we have discovered so far? Um, Well, it depends what you mean by fascinating. Obviously, uh, the Giza Pyramid is the most complex and the most accurate. Um, But in terms of its simplicity and its atmospheric effect, as it were, the best is Avebury, um, which is just near Stonehenge. Um, And it's this big circle, as I say, that looks like uh, looks like the Earth floating in space. Um, now, people will say, of course, they didn't have that information in that era. But, of course, I, I don't know if people know this, but the primary symbol of ancient Judaism was the zodiac. And so if you look at all of the early synagogues in Judea, they all have a zodiac on the floor. Um, and these are Nazarene zodiacs. These are, you know, the same church as, as Jesus and James. Um but if you look at the one at um, uh, Hamat Tavira, which is on the, the shores of the Sea of Galilee, 
the the central component in in that zodiac is Helios, the sun god, holding a blue green spherical Earth in his gravitational grasp in his hand. So, and this zodiac is like first century. So we know that in the first century they knew that the Earth was a blue green sphere in the gravitational grasp of Helios, the sun god. Uh, it's quite obvious from this zodiac that this was all understood in this early era. So if this was all understood in the first century, then how long ago can we take this information back? Can we take it back into the megalithic era of Giza and Stonehenge? I think we probably can. Probably. Let's take some calls for you. Let's go to Thomas in La Jolla, California to get us started. Hey, Tom. Hi, George. Thank you for accepting my call. Sure. I haven't said this in a long time, but uh, God bless you, your staff, and above all, God bless our audience. We have every man, every woman is just so special in this audience. We have the best community in the world with Coast to Coast. I agree with that. Thank you, Tom. Ralph, I am totally fascinated with everything that you're bringing to the table. Um, a comment and then a question. And my comment is on the Great Pyramid at Giza. Here in America, on our currency, on our $1 bill, you can look on the back of our $1 bill and you see on the back of our $1 bill the uh, Great Seal of the United States, which has the Great Pyramid. And where the capstone is, there is an eye. And some people call it the all-seeing eye, etc. Mm -hmm. And which brings me to a mystery, which is the Great Pyramid on Giza obviously had a capstone. And uh, some people have speculated that that capstone was actually a torch, that could be seen for hundreds of miles. Tony Busby out of uh, Australia believes that. But um, I'm, I wonder, it seems like, you know, in Masonic traditions, you know, Scottish Rite and that type of thing, they talk about restoring the capstone to the Great Pyramid. And um, there seems to be a mystery behind that about the idea of, replacing the capstone, this missing capstone that has been missing for how long? Hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years. But uh, I was wondering, this brings me to my question, if you have any thoughts on that, whether what the capstone to the Great Pyramid represents, perhaps in mythology, in secret society traditions, you know, is it the all-seeing eye? Is it the third eye of the human body, as some people speculate, etc.? Anyway, thank you, Ralph. Your research is very valuable, and thank you for what you're bringing to the table. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thanks, thanks very much, and uh, yeah, thanks for the good question as well. Um, because um, I think from Masonic traditions, because you know I'm a Mason myself, of course, Freemason, um, that the Great Pyramid never did have a capstone. The whole idea was that this was a Sabean 
religion. It was uh, an astronomical, astrological religion. And of course, what you wanted was an observatory to view the stars. And of course, the Great Pyramid is the greatest observatory, stellar observatory in the whole of that region. If you're on top of the Great Pyramid, you can see everything way above, you know, the the half fires of all the people down below in Cairo. Um, and so I think it was made without a capstone. It was the only one that was made without a capstone. And it had a flight of stairs that went up the side. That's how Moses went up the side of Mount Sinai to go into the cave, which we know is the big cave down the bottom of the uh, Great Pyramid. Um, and so in the casing blocks, which are all missing, of course, so we have no evidence for this stairway, there would have been a stairway going to the top, very much like the South, uh, South and Central American pyramids, which all have a stairway going to a flat platform on the top. I think the Great Pyramid was the same. And up at the top of the pyramid, way above, as I say, the smoke of the fires down below, um, you could have your astronomy, but also you could do your, um, what did they do? They did the burnt offering, the roast offering um, to the gods with a fire on the top of the Great Pyramid. Hence, we have the um, How'd they get up there about the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke. How'd they get up to the top, Ralph? Well, with the steps all the way, I mean, it's, it'll be very steep, of course, but in the casing blocks, you would have a stairway that goes to the top. Is there a stairway there now? No, because all the casing blocks have been taken off during the Muslim era about a thousand years ago. Ah. And so all traces of that stairway would have gone with the casing blocks. But it's quite possible that there was a stairway that went to the top of the pyramid. I mean, it would be a whole waste of a pyramid not to have a stellar observatory sitting on the top of it. <clears throat> it's just the perfect place. And yes, as your caller said, um, one of the Masonic goals was to restore the pyramid by putting a capstone of some nature back onto the top of it. Let's go to Tim, first time caller, Columbus, Ohio. Welcome to the show. Tim, go ahead, sir. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Uh, sure. I have a couple questions at the risk of sounding like a novice here. Uh, I don't understand the term mega lift, and I didn't realize henge was a word. I always heard of Stonehenge. I didn't know there were other henges. And what is, exactly is that? And would Easter Island formations be considered one of them? What's the definition of a megalith? Um, a megalith is just uh, Latin for big stone. So a megalith okay. is a, a big stone. And how many henges are out there? <clears throat> oh, in, in Europe, we have thousands. Um, but we only have a few of the megalith uh, henges. So Stonehenge and Avebury, and that's almost about it. Um, now, I think what happened is, is the megaliths, uh, like Stonehenge and Avebury, are the cathedrals of the ancient world. But, of course, every town and village wanted their own copy of this cathedral. And so just as in the Christian era, everybody built a church or a chapel in their local town because they wanted to uh, ape the, uh, you know, the, the splendor of the great cathedrals. And I think in the megalithic era, they did the same. They all knew about Stonehenge and Avebury, and they wanted their own smaller version in their own local town. And that's why you get this enormous great proliferation of these henges all over 
not just Britain, but, you know, uh, a lot of northern Europe as well have these henges. It is, it is truly remarkable, isn't it? What, what do you think about the structures on Easter Island? I, I, I'm, I'm still um, undecided about that, where, how old they are. Um, and how they, they move them. Recent or whether they are truly ancient. I'm not quite sure. If they're truly ancient, they're marvelous, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's, it's, it's very fascinating that the society that lives there now could not do that. Uh, one of the reasons I think that society died out is because they cut down all the trees. Um, now, if you're in that society, you would need fishing in order to sustain a large uh, society and, and civilization there. Once you've cut down all your trees, you can no longer go out fishing. And that's a real problem. And I think that's probably why they ended up as, you know, a, a, you know, a small sort of tribal unit instead of a civilization. Um, but how old the actual um, megalithic images are, because they use polygonal um, walls in the same way as they do in Greece and Central America and so on. So that there seems to be, you know, links to the other elements of the megalithic era, which would place Easter Island further back in history. You know, they're only saying, as far as I know, that um, these um, figures on Easter Island were only made sort of a thousand years ago, 1500 years ago. But if they are megalithic with the same polygonal walls, then they would have to go back to the megalithic era whenever that was. Let's go next to Joe in the Bronx. Joseph, take it away. Hey, George, how are you? Good, Joe. Good, good. Uh, Ralph, I wanted to ask you if anybody's calculated the average number of years uh, spent building the pyramids in Egypt. Probably. Yeah, they've, they've tried years, to though. estimate it. I mean, these are vast constructions. I don't know if you've been there, but every time I go there, um, you're just awestruck with the size of this um, enormous great mountain in front of you. Uh, now, ancient man could build things, you know, like uh, Silbury Hill, like the hills they made out across Anatolia for the burials of the kings like Midas, King Midas and so on. I mean, they're impressive, big hills made of earth, but they're nothing like the Great Pyramid. Now, I've seen estimates of, of 20, 25 years for building the Great Pyramid. I don't think that's possible because of the complexity of the design, not just the moving of the stones, um, but, you know, putting the chambers in there, putting the uh, small shafts in there. Gantenbrink, when he did his exploration of the small shafts, said that the shafts are so complex that they would have doubled the time that it took to build the pyramid because they're not just small shafts going through the body of the pyramid in order to stop the stones from just acting like a freight train and all running straight back down into the king's chamber or the queen's chamber. You have to have a method of keying those stones into the body of the pyramid. So he's got these enormous great girdle stones which try and stop slippage within the body of the pyramid. All of that is very complex. So it's a it's a highly technical um, piece of engineering. It's not just piling stones one on, po uh, one on top of the other. And then it's mathematical as well. You know, the, 
the uh, area of the pyramid at the level of the king's chamber is half the area of the base of the pyramid. You know, there are a, a whole load of aspects about this pyramid which are highly technical. So I think it would have taken an awful long time to build. Um, and, and that's our experience. I mean, if you look at the church, the, the great cathedrals of the um, medieval era, they didn't build them in 20 years. Many of them took hundreds of years, you know, 150 years, maybe 200 years to build. The largest cathedral in, in Britain is a recent one, Liverpool Cathedral, just up the road from me. It was only started in the 1800s. It took them 150 years, I think, to actually build it. Um, so these projects were often, you know, built over generations. They weren't built for one king. And of course, with the pyramids, no mummy has ever been found in a pyramid. These no, are not two. True. I would no. love to find the old architectural sketches for the pyramid, wouldn't yes. you? <laughs> yes, that would be interesting. They've got to be somewhere. Um, yeah, well, that's the interesting thing. There is no inscriptions within these pyramids, which is why we know they're not tombs. No pharaoh in his right mind would be buried in a uh, in a tomb that did not glorify his name with hieroglyphs and the True. Book of the Dead and everything else drawn all over the pyramid. Oh. And, of course, these are totally bare, which is why we know that these are not tombs. And if they uh, believed in life true. after death, which they did... Who'd want to be put in a tomb like that, thinking you may never get out? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You'll be stuck there forever. Um, no, these were tomb. These these were cathedrals, cathedrals to the cosmos, cathedrals to mathematics. That's what these were. Um, they weren't tombs. Ralph, what's your next project? What are you working on now? Um, well, I'm, I'm looking at a sequel to my Jesus King of Odessa book, um, which placed because. We, the problem I was always researching with this, uh, you know, biblical stories is you can't find any of these characters in the historical record, whether it's, you know, Abraham and Jacob or whether it's David and Solomon or whether it's Jesus and Saul and James. None of these characters are visible in the historical record. And so one of the big projects I've had over the last, you know, 30 years or more um, was finding these characters in the historical record. And I found all of them in the historical record. So, you know, David and Solomon, um, they are present in the 21st dynasty of uh, Egypt down in the, um, not in Zoan, uh, sorry, not in Zion, uh, Jerusalem, but in Zoan, which is Tanis. Fascinating work. Ralph, we're going to come back and take final calls with you in just a moment on Coast to Coast AM. On our next Coast to Coast program, Steve Nowak joins us to talk about other dimensions on this planet and in this world, so make sure you're part of the program. And then, of course, we'll have those Friday night into Saturday morning open lines. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you along with Ralph Ellis, our final segment as we talk about ancient megaliths and, of course, some of the very strange things going on with ice ages and things. You wrote a book called Jesus, Last of the Pharaohs. Tell me about that, Ralph. Yeah, that was uh, perhaps my first book that I did, and it was looking uh, mostly at the Old Testament, trying to match up the Old Testament story of the Exodus and the Hyksos Exodus out of Egypt. Um, people probably don't know about the Hyksos so much, but there was an identical Exodus 
historical one in the historical record, which happened about 300, 400 years uh, before the uh, normal age for the Exodus. But they are pretty much exactly the same. And the thing is that Josephus Flavius, who is, you know, Judaism's greatest historian, he says that the Israelites were the Hyksos pharaohs of Egypt. And that changes the nature of the Old Testament accounts. And people still will not uh, accept this. We tried to put it into uh, Wiki, but Wiki <laughs> didn't like it, and they um, deleted it on about 15 occasions. But yes, Josephus Flavius says that the Israelites were the Hyksos. And when you look at the Hyksos exodus out of Egypt, it's exactly the same as the um, Israelite exodus. They had the storms and the darkness. They had the war with the Egyptians. They had the great ash fall. 500,000 were kicked out of Egypt, you know, and they all went from Pyramasi to Jerusalem. <clears throat> it's the same story. Um, it just happened three or 400 years before the accepted era for the Exodus. But um, if you don't mind that chronological difference, then we have a real history of the Israelite Exodus. They were the Hyksos uh, people of Egypt, the Hyksos pharaohs. Oh, and of course, on the um, Hyksos Exodus, these were the people who destroyed Jericho. Uh, the Jericho was destroyed by the Hyksos. It's, it's the one and the same event. So we have a historical account uh, of the um, Israelite exodus. Okay, next up, let's go to Joe, Long Island, New York. Joseph, go ahead. Yeah, hi, Ralph. I have two uh, different questions. The first will be on just, you know, the Earth orbiting the sun and maintaining an exact distance as it orbits the sun. Is that the case, or is there potentially a slight variation from, you know, about... Oh, no, there's, there's quite quite a large variation. It's called eccentricity, and it's one of the major um, components of the um, uh, the orbital cycles that change the ice ages. Um, so, and the eccentricity has a 400,000-year cycle. So every 400,000 years, the um, orbital cycle element, which we call Milankovitch insulation, basically, but anyway, don't worry about that, um, is less. So it gets stronger and it gets weaker every 400,000 years. And we are currently in a very weak uh, era of eccentricity and therefore this um, orbital, uh, orbital cycle insulation. Um, and that's why we probably won't have a new ice age because the uh, great years, the great summers and the great winters are very weak at present. Um, so, yes, the, the Earth does have um, a difference in its uh, eccentricity. Okay, thank you, Joe. Appreciate you being part of the program. Next up, Steve in Meta, Missouri. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Go ahead. Yeah, how are you guys doing? Good. Hey, Thanks uh, for holding. What's the uh, massive destruction of the rainforest have to do with the climate? Because I saw a show on the British explorer Fawcett, and he trekked through the jungle for weeks looking for a lost city before he disappeared. And a few years ago, they retraced his route, and they drove there in trucks. What it took weeks for him to walk through with horses and walking. 
they drove there because it's all farmland now. And well, doesn't farm, doesn't farm that all suck all the um, you know that sucks the carbon out of the air and replaces it with oxygen? That's got to affect the the climate. Yeah, but so so do um, farm crops do exactly the same. The only difference is we tend to uh, eat the crops, and therefore the CO two gets back into the atmosphere rather quicker. Um, the interesting thing about the um, CO two satellite that they I, I think it's called Oncos. You can look it up in NASA, and they set up these uh, satellites looking at CO2 within the atmosphere because they wanted to prove that CO2 was the, um, you know, and man-made CO2 was the generator of global warming, etc. Well, the satellite discovered that most of the CO2 in the atmosphere is being generated uh, by the rainforest in Brazil and by Africa not by the major population centers in the uh, Northern Hemisphere. So that was a little bit of an embarrassment to them, that the major player in CO2 production uh, was actually the biosphere. Um, mainly, of course, you know, during the, the, the winter period when um, <clears throat> a lot of plants die and that CO2 is returned back into the atmosphere. Ralph, of everything you've investigated... What would you call it the most fascinating aspect of that? Um, well, I think just generally the way things can be covered up by, as it were, the establishment, by the uh, you know classical interpretation of history. Time and time again, we see elements which have been covered up, but covered up in plain sight. So the information is there. But you really have to dig for it and, and reinterpret it to actually find out what they were discussing. I mean, even the same happens with, with climate science. They are covering up information. We've already looked at some of that earlier on in the program. They're covering up a lot of the data so you don't get the full amount of data. Well, that happened, of course, in the biblical era with the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so, you know, I, I was able to find Jesus and James as being princes and kings of Edessa, which is a, a, a royal family up in northern Syria who nobody knows about because they've been deleted from history. They're there if you go and explore it and try and find the information, but it's not readily available, that information. So it's covered up in plain sight. And yet that information has sat there for 2,000 years and nobody has realized who these characters really were. Uh, in the historical record. And that happens time and time again, that, you know, the truth actually gets covered up. We've seen that in the COVID era, covering up the role of a particular laboratory in China, which we're not allowed to discuss, although maybe we are <laughs> to discuss nowadays. That was covered up in the same fashion. And it happens time and time again. And it's, it's a real failing, I think, uh, on the part of humanity and civilization that this continues to happen. Let's go to Mary in Burlington County, New Jersey. Hello, Mary. Welcome to the program. Hello, George. Hello, Ralph. Um, I have sort of a comment and then uh, a question. Um, I was listening to a, a minister on the radio, and he was talking about the Great Pyramid, and he wrote a book on it, and he said it's actually... Uh, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah in stone. He was counting the stones and the measurements, right? Now, that's all I got because I sent for the book. I gave it to my grandson. I said, read this and then tell me what it's saying. 
So that's all I can remember. He says that represents the book of Isaiah. And my comment when I was little, like looking at that, I always thought, and it always reminds me of um, Christ's crucifixion, because it's like the lion from the tribe of Judah and the lamb, because his last words on the cross were to his mother and John, like, woman, behold your son, John, behold your mother. And like two thieves spoke across, that would be the shadow of the pyramid hitting the ground. It always reminded me of the crucifixion scene. How biblical do yeah. you get here, Ralph? Um, well, it's interesting that, again, the role of uh, the Zodiac within the New Testament has been covered up, and yet we know it is there because we have this processional effect <clears throat> where every 2,200 years or so, the dominant uh, sign of the Zodiac changes. And, of course, Jesus reflects that uh, difference in, in the, that change in the great months. So the great month of uh, Aries ran from 1750 BC to about zero or AD 10. And then it changed into the great month of Pisces. This is a real astronomical event. You can see it on any planisphere. Uh, but that is why Jesus was born as a lamb of God, but became a fisher of men. He went from the great month of Aries into the great month of Pisces. They were following this processional effect of the zodiac um, and that pervades all of the old testament if you know where to look for it so yes jesus was following this uh procession of the equinox it's known as and that's why we see the procession of the equinox on that zodiac at hamat tavera on the sea of galilee because funnily enough <laughs> josephus flavius the um, you know judaism's greatest historian says that that zodiac was owned by Jesus, Jesus of Gamala. And now you've got to decide who Jesus of Gamala was. Uh, Gamala Sophias was his name. Um, but Josephus Flavius says that Jesus of Gamala Sophias was the leader of 600 rebel fishermen. Now, who was the leader of rebel fishermen in the first century? <laughs> um, there are elements, you know, historical elements that we can follow that can explain this story. And of course, the story is it, the story is actually exactly the same. So funnily enough, even though I'm acting as a, a, a Gnostic atheist, what I've discovered is that the Old and New Testaments are 90% correct historically. Um, I, don't, I don't venture into the spiritual aspects because that's not my domain. But uh, in historical terms, they are 90% correct in what they say. And this is one of those small elements that we can see that you can find this uh, biblical history. You can find it in real history if you look. Next up, Jeff in Santa Rosa, California. Jeffrey, go ahead. Hey, how you guys doing? Great. Um, I have uh, a question and a comment about a uh, stairwell that was found in the Great Pyramid of Giza that led down to uh, 400 feet below the base of the pyramid to an Atlantean time capsule. But I'd like to ask my question first, uh, if I may. Sure. Time permitting, go ahead. Thank you very much, sir. It's much appreciated. Um, I heard a comment, I thought I heard a comment that uh, might have got lost in the lust to answer questions about um, our guests. Uh, ability to stop an ice age, and I'd like to hear about that, if I may. Oh, yes. <clears throat> yeah, that's an interesting topic. Um, 
because we didn't get on to the uh, the full reason for the ice ages in my ice age paper, which is the modulation of ice ages by dust and albedo. It's my assertion that it, uh, the feedback agent that helps the solar cycles is actually dust. Now, we know it wasn't CO2 because CO2 is, is fairly constant. Um, therefore, it's not CO2 that does the feedback. It's actually dust. And we only get dust just before each ice age. And so it's the dust getting on the ice sheets and making the ice sheets darker that um, promotes the interglacial warming and the melting of the ice sheets. And that's why this might have be pertinent to the modern uh, climate, because it might be Chinese industrial dust getting onto the northern ice sheets that is causing some of the modern warming that we see. Uh, and that is borne out by the fact that Antarctic ice is decreasing. But what they won't tell you is that Antarctic ice has been increasing for nearly 40 years. It only decreased a little bit in 2017 because of a big storm down there. Um, so it might be dust that's causing a lot of the current warming we see. So if we translate into your question now, which is what do we do about the next ice age? Well, if it is dust that is warming the climate and melting the ice sheets because it makes the ice sheets darker and therefore they can absorb more sunlight uh, and they can melt, uh, well, if we get a new ice age with the advancing ice sheets coming down and down and down, well, you can just send Boeing 747 aircraft and spray the ice sheets with carbon, with soot. And soot is much more effective than normal dust, and it will absorb the uh, energy from the sunlight and the ice sheets will melt. So you can actually control the ice sheets just by spraying them with soot each year. Amazing. So, Ralph, yeah. we, we are out of time, my friend. Does Keep in touch with us, okay? My pleasure. You take care of yourself. For Dan Galanti, Gina Salvati, Tom Danheiser, Lisa Lyon, Lex Lonehood, Sean Laudasaur, Stephanie Smith, Chris Burroughs, Tim Benal, George Napanee, and Punted. I'm George Norrie, somewhere out there on Coast to Coast AM. We'll see you on our next edition. Until then, be safe, everybody.